back in John's letter, 1 John, and we are now at chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2. I'll be reading from the first letter of John, the first letter of John, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way as He, in which He walked. This morning we're just going to look at the first two verses, and we're going to just chip away and see... Two important words in those two verses. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to be here this morning, to come and worship you in spirit and truth, to come and sing and praise your name. And yes, it's so true, Father. If we, if we stop thanking you, we will become cold, we'll become loveless, we'll become um, less compassionate, and we will just eventually become shipwrecked. So, Father... Please help us to always give thanks and praise to your wonderful name, your great name. You are the, the almighty creator. And thank you for being mindful of us and creating us in your image. But thank you for restoring that image through Christ Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross for forgiveness of sins, where we are brought back into a right relationship with you. So, Father, we just thank you for our salvation. We just thank you for this great message we have, this message of comfort. So, Father, please help us to listen. And, and, and as I just think of those that we've mentioned in the bulletin, I pray that you would comfort Paul and Lydia, especially Lydia, that you would give her wisdom and strength to endure with the death of her brother, have mercy upon her, have mercy upon Reuben and Michelle as well, and also just be with Badner's wife, Anne. Comfort her, Father. Yes, Father, there is one sense rejoicing, but the other sense, there's, there's sorrow and grief and, and grieving and, and mourning, Father. Have mercy upon this family, Father. Please, please, Father, be with Nika and, and Michelle as well, who also is not well. May you give them that extra grace that they need to endure this, this time. Have mercy upon them all. And also, just, we just want to thank you for how you sustained Korah. Father, we know as Christians you can save us from death and through death, and, and you've saved Corinth from death, and we just thank you for that. And again, be merciful to her, and, and restore her health back to good health, Father. And we thank you for what you're doing in her life. And thank you as well, Father, for what you're doing in our church, and it's all you're doing, and that's why we want to give you thanks. We can't pat ourselves on the back, otherwise we'll end up boasting in ourselves and take away your glory, and you're not willing to share your glory with anybody but yourself. So help us, Father. Help us always to be thankful and grateful. Help us to make praise of worship and fruit come from our lips, because that's what you look for in worship. Lips that praise you, that are full of fruit. 
Help us now, Father, to hear what your word has to say. Pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the last, you can say maybe four Sundays, we've looked at chapter 1. And last week we saw that if we sin, we deceive ourselves. And how can we say we do not sin? And how can we say that we have not sinned? Um, and that's what some of the teachers, false teachers, were teaching around John's recipients. And yeah, he starts off by addressing his recipients as children. But before he goes deeper into the letter to help them see what these false teachers are doing to their character, to their love for the people, their love for, for, for God. He wants to remind them of the glorious gospel. The gospel of comfort. Do we see this Bible, this great book, as the gospel of comfort? Or do we just see it as the gospel that saves us? Do we find comfort in what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Now I know that God is the God of all comfort and that we can come to His Word and His Word can comfort us and His Word is there to encourage us and to help us as we walk with God through our sins, not the sins we practice but generally we are going to sin. But do we find comfort in the cross? Like I said, there's comfort in God's Word. Uh, you read the Scriptures. But do we find comfort? Have you ever thought of that? Oh, that is great comfort to know what Christ has accomplished for me, for us as a church on the cross. That the righteous man died for the unrighteous man to bring us to God. Do we find comfort in that? In those words? That the Gospel is the good news. That Jesus stood in our place substitutionary atonement and he died on the cross in our place we deserve death we are the unrighteous and yet you had the son of man the son of god the righteous man becoming a righteousness for us so we can be clothed in his righteousness and we should find great comfort in that that when we open up this bible we open up this book we see it as the gospel of comfort. Yes, we see it as the gospel of grace. We see it as, a, a, as, as the gospel, the good news, what Jesus did for us. But are we finding comfort in the cross alone? What Christ accomplished for us. We have one mediator between God and men. And that man is Christ Jesus. Do we find comfort in that? Do we find comfort in the fact that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us, help us in our weaknesses, help us with our sins? We should find comfort in that. So this morning, I'm not too sure if we'll get through both points, but this morning, I want to comfort our hearts. As I remind us of two comforting facts from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. 
to know that our Bible is the gospel of comfort. And hopefully it will comfort us. And hopefully it will encourage us to, to turn to the scriptures and to read God's word for comfort as well. But maybe it's good to start by seeing what Christ has accomplished for us. And without these two things that he has accomplished for us on the cross, we would still be dead in our sins and we would be hopeless. We would have no standing before God. And the first comforting fact to help us to see that this book, the Bible, is the gospel of comfort, is to know Jesus is our advocate. Do we just see Jesus as some great teacher? Do we see him as great prophet? Do we see him as, as the great son of God, the son of man? But have you ever seen him as our advocate? And we should find great comfort in knowing that Jesus is our advocate. And we're going to elaborate more on that as we work through. Because an advocate is, a, is like a specialist lawyer who stands in a courtroom on behalf of someone else and pleads for them. Yes, there's lawyers that, that don't go to court. They write nasty letters on your behalf sometimes or they help you solve a problem and you go to a lawyer. But an advocate is a specialist lawyer. He is in the courtroom. He has courtroom experience. And Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, is our advocate who gives us a standing in God's court when we plead with Him and when we confess our sin. And why I say we should find great comfort in knowing that Jesus is our advocate for our sins is because God's ultimate purpose for our lives as Christians is that we may not sin. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from sin, and He's transferred us into His kingdom as His beloved Son. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will bear a son, that's Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will, he will save his people from their sins. And John here is writing, and he knows that these people are saved from their sins, but he's also writing them so they may not continue to sin, practice sin. Live as you please. Because like I said, the, the verses before, they were saying, we have no sin. That's what the false teachers were saying. You have no sin, so you can do as you please. And you have not sinned. And they could be saying that in the context that when you're saved, you're safe. Live as you please. Licentious. Just do what you want to. You're safe. You're in God's righteousness. But no, when we read this letter, we see that the proof of our righteousness is in how we're living according to God's commandments, God's word. And as God's children, we cannot continue in sin. He's not saying yeah, we cannot sin. He's not looking for, for perfect sinlessness or sinless perfection. We will sin as Christians. There's not one person say that since they've been saved, they never sin. You're lying to yourself and to God. But as God's children, 
from the scriptures. We cannot continue to sin once we're saved. Purposefully, it's like if you know it's wrong to go into a shop and steal because it's, 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 it's one of God's commandments and it's sin, but you still do it, you must be careful. You, you're disobeying deliberately God's word and you're practicing that sin. You can't live with your partner and say you're a Christian and keep on fornicating and say it's fine, God knows our situation, He loves us and He cares for us. No, fornication is a sin. And John is, is writing here with a pastor's heart. He, he loves these, these, these folk that he's writing to. My little children. He gets their attention. And we know how much John loved Jesus and how much Jesus loved John. Do you know that the word love in this letter is mentioned more times than any other book of the New Testament? And it's only got, what, four or five chapters in such a short book. More than what Corinthians has to say about love. And I think in the three letters, it, yeah, it's the most that love is mentioned in, in these three books. So there's, there's something about God's love that He shares with us which needs to flow from us into this world. And if you sin, and you keep on sinning, how does that love flow from your being, from our hearts? Paul writes to the church of Rome, he says, So you also must not consider yourself Sorry, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Once God saved us, we walk in newness of life. Not perfectly, we will still sin. But we do not practice the sins. We do something about them. That's why it's a spiritual battle. It's against, not against flesh and blood, it's against the powerful forces, the dark forces of, this, of the dark ages. And we, we need to allow God's word to transform us. And it's by the power of the gospel of Christ, this, this comforting gospel that can transform us more and more into Christ-likeness. So we stay away from sin. So we become like Joseph when you're caught up in a situation. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? How often do we cry out in that sense? When we're about to fall into temptation, do we follow the temptation? Or do we turn our back and flee to God and say, God, how can I sin against you? Especially what you've done on the cross for us. And there is an advocate to plead for me if I do fall into sin. But how can we? And we will. Because sin is powerful. Satan is powerful. And we underestimate the power of sin. But we live in this world not practicing sin. Because if we do, then we just disobey God, we disobey His Word, and all we do is we walk in sin, meaning we walk in unbelief, disobedience, and 
we are not loving according to the scriptures. Uh, God has called us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and then love our neighbour as ourselves. We say if we know God, then we must not practice sin. And it's hard. It's not easy. We live in this beautiful world. And there's the desires of the heart, there's the lust of the eyes, there's the pride of life that gets in the way. But we can also say, yes, it's hard, but thank God for Jesus. Because it is His work that is grounded in the finished, or it's His work to help us to not sin, because it's grounded in the finished work of Him, of Christ, who died on the cross for us. And our comfort is to know that Christ has accomplished so much for us. On the cross, He defeated sin, Satan, the world, and the flesh. But that does not mean we do not sin. It means we have an advocate to help us. But we also know that there is an advocate, the Holy Spirit, that has been given to us as well, a helper. But we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who is seated next to the right hand of the Father, where He intercedes for us and where He pleads for us. Because if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why, we, and I've mentioned this over and over and over from Colossians chapter 3. That's why Paul is saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated, the right hand of God. Because there is our advocate. There is the one that can, that can plead for us when we cry out in confession. There needs to be action from our part in order for our advocate to do his part in the courtroom. And to know that Jesus is our advocate with the Father should bring great comfort. And what a gracious God we serve. What a gracious and loving God who has provided us with not only the Holy Spirit but with his Son to help us to not sin. And when we do sin, or when we can confess our sin. That's what he was trying to teach the people in verse 9 of chapter 1 of 1 John. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's telling us God takes our sin seriously, that we need to do something about it. And Jesus is the righteous one. Some translations say the righteous one. And he died for the unrighteous so that we would become his righteousness. That his righteousness would be imputed to us so that we are clothed in his righteousness. And our sins are imputed to him. And so that when we confess our sin, we have an advocate who knows us because we are clothed in his righteousness. And the parakletos which literally means someone called alongside to help. And that's what Jesus is. He, he is there to come alongside us and help us. Same as the Holy Spirit. He lives in us, is our helper, and he helps us to walk in light, not in darkness. But when we do sin, we know that when we cry out, we have Jesus as our heavenly paraclete or advocate. The one who pleads our cause, that's our sins, with the Heavenly Father. 
And in Greek law, if you were accused of a crime, you might ask a best friend to speak in your defence. He would act as an advocate. And that's exactly what we have. We have Jesus as our defence counsel. And he's uniquely qualified to stand in God's presence and represent us. Why? Because he is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. An advocate is a lawyer who speaks in favour of someone or defends them in a court of law. And if you want to know more about court, read Isaiah. There there's, there's, he challenges people to come to his court and, and take him on. You can't take God on. God is all-known, all-powerful. And Jesus is our advocate. And we should find great comfort in that. That for our sake, God made him, Christ Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Like I said, his righteousness has been imputed to us. So that when we stand before Jesus and confess our sin or confess our sin to him, we have an advocate to plead with the Father. I like what someone says, um, if I can see this, this illustration. Um, he says that Jesus is our advocate when God first accepts us, in, us into his family as his children. But Jesus stands as the advocate between our repentant hearts and the law. If his blood has been applied to our lives through faith and confession of him as Lord, he pleads our case with the righteous judge. We might imagine the conversation going something like this, Father, I know this one has sinned and violated our commands. He's guilty as charged. However, you have said that my sacrifice is sufficient payment for the debt he owes. My righteousness was applied to his account when he trusted in me for salvation and forgiveness. I have paid the price so he can be pronounced not guilty. There is no debt, no debt left for him to pay. Because Christ paid it all for us on the cross. My point is, do we take sin seriously and do we confess our sin to the righteous one, our advocate? Because if we don't do anything about our sins, then... then where is the love of Christ in us? This is what we're going to get deeper into as we work through John's letter. Because that's what eventually goes into from verse 7. And, and, and the rest of the letter. We we'll always find love being put in somewhere. And what a comfort it is to know that we have a righteous mediator. And he intercedes for our sins. That's why the joy of the gospel is our comfort. And what comfort it is to know that the very presence of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, stands before the Father, pleads for us, and that's enough to guarantee forgiveness and secure restoration. That's why how can we, and I'm sensitive to what I'm going to say, but how can, with Roman Catholicism, how can they teach you that the priest or the minister can forgive your sins? He's not the righteous one. He's not the mediator between 
man and God. And if, he, if, you, if you confess your sins to him, then who gives him the right to take your sins to God? It's not his job. It's not his responsibility. It's our responsibility in our own right to take our sins and plead with God and ask him to forgive us and confess them. Bobby can't come to me and say, Mark, please, I've sinned. Can you pray and ask God to forgive me? In one sense, I can ask God to forgive him, but I can't do what Darby has been called to do through the scriptures. He must confess his sins. I can pray and ask God to help him not to sin anymore. And God will forgive him because he has promised us. Just go back to verse 8. If we say, sorry, if verse 9, if we confess our sins and if we're sincere and genuine about that, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God holds on to his promise. He's a faithful God and a just God. And he will forgive us our sins. It's a promise. That's why we have an advocate. That's why we can trust God with Jesus, the Son of God, who's our advocate, who, who pleads for us, who stands in that courtroom before the righteous judge, the Father. But let us remember that we're going to sin. And if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And hopefully that we've been reminded by this one comforting fact from 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, to know that our Bible is the gospel of comfort, and that we will see it as the gospel of comfort. We won't just open up the word to comfort us, but when we cry to Jesus, we will find great comfort in what he accomplished for us on the cross. And great comfort knowing that he's our advocate. And Lord willing, next week we'll look at Jesus, he's our propitiation. We'll see what does that mean. And it's important for us to turn to some, some words to bring it back into our theology. So that we know what we do is right before God. And we don't hear it from, from other people. We hear it from God and His Word. What it means for Him as our advocate. And He is the propitiation for our sins. What does it mean? So hopefully we will be comforted by Jesus. What He did. He gave Himself up for our sins. To deliver us from the present evil age. For our old self to be crucified with, with Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. That we've been set free from sin. And have become slaves of righteousness. And it's far better to be a slave of righteousness than a slave of sin. And be oppressed by sin. And that's why the Bible is the gospel of comfort. Because we can find great comfort in knowing Christ Jesus died on the cross to become our advocate, to plead with us. I'm not saying we don't sin, we will sin. But are we practicing that sin or are we pleading with Jesus to forgive us and to help us through the word? Let's pray. Father, we 
pray for wisdom and strength. We know that we may not sin, but when we do sin, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, who died for us, the unrighteous, so that we may have an advocate to plead with when we do sin. Father, please, may we, when we come to the Lord's table, may we be reminded of what Christ accomplished on the cross for us, that we will see great comfort in the cross and not just see it as a mundane thing or just another works. But Father, there your love was displayed to us to help us so we may not sin, so we may walk humbly and uprightly with you. And thank you again that we have an advocate with you, Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, to plead when we sin. But Father, again, I just pray for mercy and grace. Confess that we all sin. Our sin, we all sin. Forgive us, Father. But help us not to boast in our sins. Help us to do something about them. And help us to boast in Christ, the righteous one, who died on the cross to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Be merciful to us. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is also our helper, to cleanse us and to wash us clean, to sanctify us, and to transform us more into Christ-likeness, so we may walk in the light and not in darkness. Please, Father, be merciful to us. I pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.